The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Well, welcome. I, I want to give a shout out to our Doxa folks. You know, Anna, we, we did our Christmas party last night, and, and Anna was sticking around after most of the people had left, and she said, she goes, I, I love my church. And I hope you, if you're visiting, I hope where you're visiting from, you love your church. And I hope if you're a part of this body, I hope you love your church. Uh, it's a great thing to be a part of this. So let me uh, say a prayer and opening because we might need it this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. We uh, thank you that we love our church because you love us. And that love is present in our midst. And boy, that, that we rejoice upon. We thank you so much that there is joy amongst these people because of what you've done on a cross for coming, for coming and sacrificing. And uh, we just praise you and thank you. I pray the people here this morning will be blessed. They'll leave with something that they'll take with them Monday as a light to shine to people who have darkness. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. I uh, think about Christmas and all, all of the holidays that we celebrate as Christians. And it, it seems that the secular world does a fantastic job of hijacking our religion. Or what we believe about God. There's, there's got to be a counterpart to what we celebrate. And this time of year, sadly... Uh, we, we have had hijacked, we've had Christmas hijacked in grand fashion. And um, what's even worse is that this conspiracy to undermine Christmas gets us to involve our children in this endeavor. And uh, so, so we, we deal with this, uh, I'm going to say it, um, we're lying to our children. That's what we're doing at Christmas in large part. We lie to them. And let me tell you why we lie to them. We tell our children that this fat guy with a white beard is coming to our house. He's going to break into our house, okay? You know, he's, he's coming and, and he's getting in somehow. And so he's going to break in the house. And if little Johnny's been well-behaved this past year, he's going to cash in, all right? It's going to be great. Gifts, piles of gifts. And if little Johnny's not been well-behaved, guess what? Lump of coal. You're in trouble. And you think about this. We're telling these little kids, you know, this story. It's propaganda. And so, so what, what happens with this, the, the question for little Johnny, everything hinges upon this question. Have you been naughty or nice? I mean, talk about a guilt trip for the poor kid. Because on one hand, he's got gifts coming if he lies. Or he's going to come clean and get nothing. So, and, and we tell him not only have you been naughty or nice... Uh, but this guy's got a list. He checks it twice. Uh, Santa doesn't miss a thing. He sees, he knows when you're sleeping, right? Creepy, really creepy now, all right? He knows when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. And he knows if you've been bad or good. And now you put the kid up. You, you bring him to the mall because that's where Santa hangs out before Christmas, right? Which is never as rational to me. I was literally going, nah, the mall, yo? Is he at all the malls? What's going on? He's on the news, four different channels. All right, so, so we have this guy. So we bring our kid to the mall, because uh, that's where Santa obviously hangs out. And um, we put little Johnny, I'm joking with little Johnny. If your kid's name is Johnny, I'm, well, I, should, I should say little Jonathan. How's that? Is that better? All right, puts little Jonathan on his lap. And um, basically, you, you take him to the stranger, you put him on the guy's lap, and little Johnny's going to get cross-examined, right, about his behavior over the past year. So, you know, again, you put your kid on some old man who giggles a lot. You put your kid on his lap. You've never seen him before, all right? Okay, a little creepy here. And um, 
you know, he, he starts to cross-examine the kid. Now, you know why he puts them on the lap? The same reason when you get in trouble and they hook you up to a lie detector test and they strap wires all over your body, Santa's got the same thing going on in his lap, okay? Because he can tell if you start lying when you start shaking. Why also is all the pictures of Santa and little Johnny in his lap, why is the parent never in the picture? And I'm going to tell you why, first of all. In order to put the kid in the lap, you're probably 12 inches away face to face with Santa. So if you start lying and he doesn't pick up on the leg detector test, he's going to see you start sweating it out, all right? And the parents are nowhere in the vicinity because if the parents heard Johnny's confession, it would be much worse than it already is. So th this is what we have taking place. And oh, there's a photo. There's a photo to document the interrogation. So let me, let me fill you in on a secret. Johnny doesn't think this is fun, all right? This is not amusing. Um, it becomes more stressful as he gets older. Because, you know, you ask a little four-year-old, have you been good this year? He'll say, yeah, well, yeah, I think so. A five-year-old, he's learning to steal. He's not learning, by the way. Little kids don't learn to steal, to cheat, and lie. It comes with the program. They just get better as they get older because they have more opportunity, right? So the, as they get older and older, they're being called to account for this behavior that they know doesn't square up. And if he blows it, the next time he sees gifts is his birthday, which is in August. That's no good. So, so here's what we have. Johnny's hoping he can keep up the charade long enough to, to cash in and get the new bike. How many times have you witnessed falling scene? You go to the mall, there's a line of kids getting ready to be interrogated, and a handful of them are screaming and crying, right? Why? They know what's up. So just having said that, Merry Christmas. If you don't, let, let me not discourage you from bringing your kids to Santa this year. Now, just, I'm just telling you what's up. So I have this, we got a text. Uh, before you put it up, hold on a second. Oh, you got it? No, hold on a second, Hudson. We got a text from my brother-in-law just recently. And um, it seems that his son, who's eight plus years old, had just lost his first tooth. And they gave him one of those Susan B. Anthony dollars. So we get this text sent to us, and it says, little Johnny, or little James, actually, has lost his silver dollar, can you find it? Can you post this? Can you find the silver dollar? That's pretty horrifying. Like they needed surgery to go get the thing. So picture James's interrogation with Santa this year, all right? I mean, it's, it's relevant, right? So, so here he goes down to the, he, James sits on Santa's lap, and Santa says, naughty or nice? You've been good or bad. Now, James obviously has felt the heat recently. He knows he can't lie. The lie detector's going on. He's eight, so he, he really sees what's going on. And here's the dialogue. Santa's up close again. James says, well, I got this coin from the tooth fairy. Really, Santa? I didn't know she was your cousin. <laughs> yes, yeah, my mom and dad did say don't put it in your mouth. Yeah, uh, they said it multiple times. Um, yeah, I did actually have to have surgery to take it out, Santa. Um, yeah, it was expensive. It cost my dad 10 grand. So how's he doing with Christmas this year? Little kid's called to account. That was unbelievable when I saw that. I was like, oh, no. But we don't need a lot of explaining with that picture, do we? So I'd love to wish you guys a Merry Christmas and your children in particular. So let me ask you, if you wind up on Santa's lap this year, if you wind up on his lap and you have to answer 
the question. Naughty or nice? Good or bad? How well, how well are you going to fare this year? And remember, he knows when you've been sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He's got the list. He's checked it twice. Seriously, how, how well, how well when no one else has been watching? Just my question and opening. So we're gonna, the, we, we opened up with the Matthew verse, and I'm going to read this again. It was Matthew 18, uh, Matthew 1, 18 through 21. And, and I just want to kind of reaffirm this backstop because we are here celebrating Christmas, and it's a fantastic time of year. And I don't think you can hear this message too often, period, let alone this time. So it says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear or take Mary, uh, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call, him, call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Well, what a beautiful statement, for he will save his people from their sins. We are covering through the Advent series Galatians 4, 4 through 5, and I'll read this again. Um, but when, the, to but when uh, the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And I've been asked to teach just on, gosh, it's seven words, I believe. Seven? Yeah. I'm, I, I was given this, and boy, I got lucky. That's all I can say. Whoever assigned, I think it was Josh. boy. thank you. I, I was given this morning to teach just a couple words of this, and the words are to redeem those who were under the law. So I'm going to talk about two things, redemption and the law, and I'm going to do it backwards because I think it, it flows easy, easier that way. And what a great thing, I am highly qualified to teach on the law. So I'm a lawyer, and that's really, that works well. So let me give you a little backdrop on the law and um, kind of put the pieces together for us. Since man has become civilized, the law is, is that um, thing that adds structure, stability, and security to our existence. It, it, it holds us together in a manner where if, if it wasn't present, we would have mayhem as, as a people. Um, it allows us to exist peacefully, to establish boundaries, personal liberty, and security. And really, without the law, there is no, you might say, I can do what I want. But truthfully, if somebody's not adhering to those, uh, giving you parameters for liberty and security, you don't have it. It's a lie. Um, and with, typically, we administer laws through governments. And whether a government is democratically established or or that power is seized, it often makes little to no difference. You say, that sounds crazy, Jonathan. Well, let me give you a case in point. Look at Iraq before uh, we, we went over there and dethroned Saddam Hussein. Um, the place was a very structured society. It's, it's interesting today, all, a lot of the historical sites, some biblical sites are being destroyed now. But they were preserved under his reign. Um, there were never car bombs going off all over downtown Baghdad. There, there was not this open mass slaughter of people. Um, and contrast that with today, you've got warring factions that are basically butchering other, others to pieces. So even it, with that demo, not having a democratic regime, a bad dictator is better than no dictator. 
Because once you have no dictator, you have no established rule of law. You have nothing to go upon. Even if the administration of rule of law is, is misappropriated, for lack of better words, it still adds a structure and stability to that society as a whole. Which is better, a tyrannical dictator who rules with an iron fist or 10 different factions warring against each other? Think about it. I can tell you immediately, I'd live in pre uh, or with Sodom than the way things are right now. That, that's a no-brainer. Think about, sadly, the uh, situation concerning Michael Brown out in Ferguson. Which is better, to have a grand jury that some claim didn't do their job or to hang, have an angry mob assume they're going to handle justice and lynch people, whether or not there's been a trial at all. So just as our legal system is put together, and it really does in truth, especially our Western culture, flow from the law that God had given the Jews to govern and hold together uh, their people. Not only has this law been given to us as a people, but God has laws that govern our physical existence and our spiritual realm. All of that's in place. So, let me ask you a question. You gotta ask this, when you're talking about the law, why do people hate lawyers so much? You ever think about that? Why, we get, why do we get such a bad rap? Is it because we charge too much? I mean, that's a fair question, but hey, that doesn't hold water, by the way, because look at doctors. Doctors charge a good penny too, yet they're not getting slinging arrows at them. So I should ask this question maybe differently. What is the number one reason people dislike lawyers? And no, it's not they don't return your phone call. That's number two, by the way. What, what's the number one reason? Number one reason, think about this. Number one reason is because people see them utilize the law to their client's advantage, even when it seems wholly unjust. So your lawyer got you off of that? Or how do they do that? And you hear about these misappropriations of justice, and we go back and say, well, it must be the lawyer who did it, right? It's, it couldn't be the law. Of course, that's a different, whole different can of worms. I'll give you a case in point. There, there was a, a situation uh, of a guy who was charged with indecent exposure, and, and here's what happened. This person gets out of the shower. They forgot to close the blinds in their bedroom. Uh, not wearing a towel, and unfortunately in the home right next door, that window was right next to another house's window. And unfortunately, double unfortunately so, as this man standing in front of that window, a little girl comes walking into her bedroom and looks out her big plate glass window, and 10 feet away is, guess what? Indecent, you know, obviously inappropriate um, viewing, for your lack of, lack of better words. So they, the, the mom picks up the phone, calls the police. And, and the, the, literally, the, the officer lodged a complaint. The officer was writing the warrant when the indecent exposing guy's lawyer called the cop and said, hey, you don't have a case. You don't have a case at all because the law reads at that time that indecent exposure was where somebody reveals, obviously, a part of their anatomy inappropriately, which can be viewed from a public street or alleyway. And your window? through which your daughter looked, can't be seen through a public street or alleyway. Does that sound kind of crazy? And then a year later, these two kids come down to Myrtle Beach from Virginia, and what do young people do at night when it's warm and, and you're at the beach? What do we do? What do what, what you guys, don't say what you guys did. What, what do you do? You go skinny dipping. And, and, the, and the problem there was that there was a North Myrtle Beach policeman standing there when they came out of the water. And guess what happened? 
They were arrested and charged with indecent exposure. And they were convicted of it from a public street or alleyway. So when you think about this, and, and the one particular individual who exposed himself to the little girl, um, did the man know that there was a little girl's room right across from his window? Did the man intentionally leave the blinds up on that particular day? Did the man intentionally forget his towel when he left the bathroom? Does the law care about any of those factors? Does it matter at all? The law takes no account of motive. Generally speaking, I'll say this. Now, we got another lawyer in here. Lori here? Okay, good. So, so the law does account occasionally for motivation. But generally speaking, it's fact-based. Fact Doesn't take account of what happened with this guy. And on the other hand, you got this young couple who are just running around, living life, winding up with a criminal record. So when you witness what appears to be the unjust administration of the law, it leaves a bad taste in our mouth. And it upsets us when we see what appears to be this miscarriage of justice. But the problem really doesn't rest with the lawyers. Whew, ain't that good, Lori? We're off the hook now. You know what the problem is? The problem's the law. The problem is the law. Because each time we see this miscarriage of justice, we don't take the lawyers out and shoot them. We go to the legislature and say, change what? The law. Yeah, we got to get it so we can get this guy next time. So we're going to modify that system. And our laws really at the heart intend to shoot for something that is moral, to regulate a behavior that is moral. And that really comes again from God and from his law. God's idea of right and wrong were given to man through Moses. Most notably in Exodus, when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not murder, not steal, not bear false witness, not make for yourself a carved image, not take the Lord of your God in vain. Don't commit adultery, don't covet your neighbor's house, honor your mother and father. And again, all just foundations for our behavior. And here's the problem. Here's the big problem. These laws which God established for our liberty, for our security, for our protection, to allow us to live the fullness. You know, it's always interesting. If you look closely at God's law, it is never to make you miss out on the goodness and the fullness of life. It is to allow us to experience the fullness, the goodness of life as he had intended. But here's the problem with the law. The law is cold. The law is colorblind. It takes no account, generally speaking, of motivations. Although, again, we, we in our society have some laws that say intent plays. The law disregards an individual's integrity in other matters. You can have a loyal, hardworking husband, never cheats on his wife, never steals at work, but he doesn't pay his taxes. The IRS doesn't care if you're faithful to your spouse. They will go after you. They will get their pound of flesh. Trust me, they will. And going to them and saying, but I'm a moral man. I don't run around on my wife. How far does that go? You guys ever use that excuse? Don't get you very far. Let's, let's put it that way. The law takes no account of past good conduct. But, Your Honor, I've paid my taxes for the last 30 years. <laughs> but the 31st is the problem. You're on the hook now. It takes no account of one's ignorance of the law. My brother-in-law is a state trooper. He's here this morning. If you say, I didn't know what the speed limit was, I know what he's going to tell you. Well, that's your fault. That's really kind of your fault. You should have looked at the big 40-mile-an-hour sign a quarter block behind us. Something usually like that. That's usually his conversation. The law is very patient. You know, we still hunt down Nazi war criminals, statute of limitations. God, and, and God doesn't have a statute of limitations, by the way. That's a real problem. 
but it's patient. It'll wait. It'll wait. It only accounts for our action and whether or not such conduct is condoned or prohibited. The law leaves no room for excuses. And boy, that's, um, that's a painful statement. Well, I had a rough childhood. Well, oh well. I had a bad environment. Oh well. I got a rough shake in life. Oh well. I got a short stick. I got the short end. Oh well. Is, is there in God's holy law, thou shalt not commit murder? Um, but it says, but if you have a bad day and you've been angry at your wife, it's okay, right? Does it say that? No. No. Takes no account. I want to tell you my problem with the law, how I struggle with this. There's a local attorney a couple years back, Morgan Martin. He uh, represented Johnny Register, who murdered his high school girlfriend, Crystal Faye Todd, in 91. And Morgan was the one who said that you can't use DNA in the trial. It was in Conway. He said it's unreliable because of inbreeding in Conway. Oh, you want to talk about ruffling some feathers quickly? You know, the pool of DA is no good. And that kind of brought him to national attention, by the way. Barbara Walters calls him and says, hey, no, I don't want to talk about the case. I just want to talk with you. Could we have lunch? Literally. But, but one of the person interviewing him a couple of years back, and I'll never forget this, says, what's the best thing about being a lawyer? And he, and he gets this gleam in his eye, and he looks right into the camera, and he says, I get to ask the questions, not answer. Think about that just for a moment. The problem with all human, the, 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 what he's saying is, if I'm not subject to it, that's where I'd prefer to be. Because the person who's answering the questions is the one who has their feet getting put into the fire. And that's the problem with the law. It calls us personally to account. And if you're asking the questions, obviously you're not the one called to account. And the difficulty here is that the problem with all of humanity is we are all going to be called to account before a holy God, and he, not us, will be asking the questions. And that's the problem with the law. We will be called to account, and we will not be asking the questions. God will be answering, asking the questions. And Hebrews 9.27 tells us, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that come judgment. That's a great verse. There are landmark verses, and I think for Christians, we need to have those verses in our back pocket and pull it out. Um, and there you have it. We're called to account before God according to his law. And in the final analysis, if we really look at ourselves before God's holy, perfect law, we're in trouble. Ever tell a lie? Just one, by the way, will work for me. Ever tell a lie? Makes you what? Liar. You ever take something wasn't yours, give less than full value? What's it make you? A thief. You ever use Lord's name in vain? Just once again would be fine. It makes you a blasphemer. Dishonor your parents? Well, that's a good one. Ever angry enough to kill? And your heart makes you a murderer. James 2.10 says this, For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles on one point. Boy, that's a tough law. I don't like that law. That's the law that says you blow it one, one place, one time, you're done. You got a problem with that law? That, that's a difficult law. Yet stumble on just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. And this is the law that we're talking about in, in, in Galatians. Under the law. Now, now, a word about redemption or redeeming. The Hebrew word, I don't even try to pronounce this stuff. It's G-A with a little, little line over the A and then A-L. The word has a central meaning, meaning to regain possession of by payment 
or to buy back something that was lost. There's a secondary meaning. Talks about to avenge bloodshed or to require blood, that eye for an eye type of spirit there. So here's the problem. We violate God's law, which is holy and just and perfect, and we've been found guilty. And for God to be just, he couldn't step forward and pardon our sin. Every time the president leaves office, he pardons people, and the public goes nuts. We don't go nuts just because the problem with that is that we see what it's like when somebody says, I won't enforce the law for you. That's infuriating to another person who stands there and is subject to it. You can't remain just and suspend the law for some and hold others accountable to it. And that's a huge issue when we talk about attributes of God. God is just. He can't just write a pardon and say, good, good, we're done. There must be a satisfaction of the penalty. You just can't ignore bad acts. And the problem with sin is its severity in view of how God sees it. God's view on sin is that it's punishable by death. To avenge that, that sinful act against God requires bloodshed. It's considered, you know, and I like this word, sin is high treason against the kingdom of God. It's mutiny because it's me saying I'm wholly independent on how I'm going to live my life in this particular matter at this particular moment. I want nothing to do with you who has all authority, all power, all knowledge, and is responsible for all provision. That we just take and say, nope, but I've got enough. I'm going to do it my way. Where does that leave you? If you did that to a worldly king, how would he respond? They get a guillotine for that thing. So for God to remain just, he had to buy back that which is lost, meaning that we being lost in our sin. And we know the price. Romans 6.23 tells us, for the wages of sin is death. So to redeem or, redeem or ransom us from sin, the punishment must result in death. Now, I'm not talking about whether we like this or not. This is the black letter. This is the black letter text of God's word. Romans 4.25 tells us that he, that is Jesus, was delivered over to death for our sins. And we heard that statement in the opening verse tonight. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. I have a Christmas card that I absolutely love. Can we post that Christmas card, Hudson? Can you guys see what it says? The kid's in the hot seat. He knows he's in over his head. He knows he can't just come clean because the sensor in the seat he's sitting in is going to go ballistic. And the beads of sweat are going to start pouring off of his forehead. And there he sits trying to figure out, how do I navigate this one? He's going to make a great lawyer, by the way. Because you know what he's doing? What every good lawyer does, he starts looking for technicalities. All right, that's what he's doing. He said, well, let's look at the word good. And redefine it. Because if you can lower the definition of the word good to that of all my peers and friends, I can get by. And I won't even be lying. Yep. That's, that's, I look at that car, I just think, define the kids, the kids, he's gone, I gotta get around this one. Define good. You know, that's how I lived as a person, as an unsaved person, and I'll say this, that's how I live some days as a Christian, which is horrifying. 
It's horrifying because I'm saying to God, no, I know what you did, but it's not adequate today. I'll handle it myself. And I'm thinking in my heart when I was unsaved that if I could just be good, that might be enough on that day of judgment, which I think God has wired into the heart of every human being. Do you ask a Christian, think you might be judged after you die? Ask a non-Christian that. And, and they're going to hem and haw. They're going to squirm. Do you think if there is a God that you'll be called to account at some level? You see, there's the key. Because they're going to say, well, at some level, hopefully, because if I can reach that standard of good, I'll be in. Right? I had that lurking suspicion before I came to Christ. I'd never be good enough, and I knew it. It was a charade. And I would define it by the people around me. So if I hung out with grossly immoral people and I was somewhat immoral, guess what? I was okay. I'm looking good. I'm lo and that's all. And if I can keep that, that pack of lies up here, I can navigate through this world without God. The problem is, is that I can't. And we do a thousand things to quiet that voice that says, you'll never be good enough. Not before a holy God. So we pour alcohol in it, we put drugs in our system, you know, we run as fast as we can, we go get jobs, we get things more, better, we give self-image, we acquire power, we exercise that over other people, and we think somehow that will either quiet the voice or it will give me a standing that will classify me as good. And the problem is, is without Christ, that's the deal. And I knew that was the deal because I knew that I had no choice in the sinful manner in which I was living. I had become a slave to sin. And John, in John 8, 34, Jesus tells us very truly, I tell you, everyone who, who sins is a slave to sin. But as we, believers in Christ, celebrate Christmas, there's no stress in defining good. We're seeing if we can qualify to get into the good category. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. What beautiful words. When we take this and, and, and bring it home, I don't have to sweat this anymore. I don't have to tell my kids. That's the horrifying thing with this young man. Somebody put him up to that. And the kids are going, wow. You know, our children are growing up. And they're thinking the same thing. They're looking at the world and it's screaming, are you good enough? Are you good enough? And in their hearts, it's a lie. They'll never be good enough. So let me tell you what happens this year. I'm, I'm going I'm to do a touche with Santa. I'm going to the mall. I'm not bringing my kids. I'm going to get on his lap. Say, say, Santa, can I get on your lap? Let's see if in public he's going to let me on his lap. I bet he doesn't, which again confirms the creepiness I told you about before, all right? Little boy, the girl's are laughing, but he won't let me on his lap. But if I can squirm onto his lap, I'm going to pull all my weight on my bottom, and I'm going to lean in and say, I'm not good. I'm better than good. I'm righteous. I am righteous. And if you look at my record, you ain't going to see nothing as far as the eye can see. The slate has been wiped clean. We talk about the joy of Advent. Man, that is the big bang. And I'm not living there. I'm not saying we don't, we don't express in gratitude certain works for the grace we've received. That's different. I'm talking about standing before a holy God, and he's asking the questions. And I'm saying, I don't need any definitions on this day.
Genesis 15, 6. And again, if you're here and you're standing on that fence, and I, I make no assumption that when people show up in church, they're saved. But if you're standing on that fence and you know in your heart, I don't, I don't have that righteousness. I don't have that joy. I don't have that peace. It's so simple. And again, the scripture says if you come to me as a child, you can, you can get it. But you might miss it if not. Genesis 15, 6 says, And Abraham, he, Abraham, believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Romans, we can post this. This is a landmark. This is something we should own as Christians. Romans 3, 21 through 25 says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify, pointing to Christ, that is. The righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Man, you should hear a crack and see the ball clear in the 400-foot 400, 400 fence with 100 feet. Very simple. That's it. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all, all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus, by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. There's that shedding of the blood, the accounting, the buying back through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. So if you run into Santa and you love the Lord, tell him you had a great year. But would you tell him why? She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. So as we say this year, have a Merry Christmas, remember, let us all tell those that Christ has made all the difference. This is our joy in celebrating Christmas. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much that uh, we come here this morning if, if already having come to you and made a profession that there's no sweat. What a great thing that is, that we can just celebrate Knowing who we are, we get to celebrate what you did. And it has been made right. And we are made righteous. Lord, we praise you. We thank you. And we rejoice. And we pray that this season, again, would be an opportunity for us to shine a light toward you about this grace. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.